Today's podcast is brought to you courtesy of the Greater Glasgow Pensioners for Independence Group. The topic is the defence and security of an independent Scotland. The speaker is Isabel Lindsay and she's introduced by Val Gold. We're absolutely delighted to have as our speaker today Isabel Lindsay, who is going to be talking to us about security and defence in an independent Scotland. And Isabel, I'm sure you're all well aware of her. I'll just give us small introduction. Isabel has been a lifelong campaigner uh, for nuclear disarmament. She's currently the vice convener of Scottish CND and she's written and spoken widely over the years as well as campaigning very actively as a peace activist. She has been active in nuclear disarmament since the 1950s. In 1960, she was one of the original signatories of the Committee of 100, and she has also served on the National Executive of the SNP, and she was convener of the Scottish, of the campaign for a Scottish Assembly. Uh, But I think you would agree, maybe, Isabel, that you're best known and loved for your work on CND and that's what you're here to talk to us about today so thank you very much without further ado I'll pass over to you. Thanks well the paper that I did which is available on the Independence Convention website was one of a series of transition papers because we felt very strongly that uh, we really had the movement as a whole really had to start to do the work Uh, in order to let uh, YES supporters and those swithering uh, understand how we can make uh, not just a a safe and balanced transition, but how we can actually improve things, how, how we can change for the better, but that people need this kind of information. And unfortunately... This isn't the kind of thing that you produce, um, you know, a month before a referendum, because it takes a long time for all these various issues to get through and people to become accustomed to it, to do the educational work. Now, I really want to see us moving away from using the term defence and instead focusing on the term security. And the the, the reason for that is that defence is so associated with traditional military, uh, with armies and navies, uh, with military hardware and, and so on, and warfare. Whereas I think we need to look in the round at what are the threats um, what are the kind of threats that fundamentally might undermine many essential aspects of our society? And look at this in perspective. Uh, now, one of the reasons why I think it's so important to do this is because we're not living in the 19th century or the 20th century, and so much has changed. Not enough has changed, but many important things has changed. And we've got to get things, people thinking in those kind of terms. Uh, so uh, th- th- this is, interestingly enough, isn't out of line with the UK government up to a point, because 
uh, its uh, strategic and security review that it's supposed to carry out every five years. Uh, in 2015, it carried out one. Last year, it carried out what it called its integrated review. And interestingly enough, when they look at what are the security threats, you know, even talking about UK as a whole, you find a whole list of them which have really nothing to do with the idea that we're going to be invaded or that we're going to be attacked by foreign powers. They list quite a number of the things that you know I'm going to refer to. The only trouble is that when it comes to their conclusions, they're right back to military hardware <laughs> and more absurd things like uh, the two aircraft carriers that are sailing out uh, yesterday to the uh, East China Seas. Uh, I don't know who we're going to be battling with out there. <laughs> but um, so let's, in, in our, when we take these forward, when people start talking about, oh, defence, how would we do that? We need to be saying, let's look at security threats, what we prioritise, how we're going to deal with these and uh, I, I think uh, if I had to look at what are those security threats, then probably very much top of the list, climate change would be one of them. And this isn't just a, a, a matter of economics. Uh, this is very much a matter of how it may affect uh, in an existential way many of our coastal communities, how it might decimate uh, uh, much uh, by way of our economic structures, yes, but it will also create a lot of international disruption and mass migration. So clearly for all kinds of reasons, that has to be up there and nobody disputes this as a security threat. And then we come on to cybersecurity. And I think, again, if you talk to people, there is a growing awareness of just how enormously dependent, and this is increasing all the time, as we can see sitting here, um, on these IT networks. And it's only last week that the US had um, an attack on one of its major uh, oil pipelines, one of the, the biggest uh, in Texas. And uh, this uh, was carried out by a, a handful of criminals, as far as one knows, for financial gain. Uh, so you can have this, and they were saying, oh, the price of oil is going up in the US, and this is happening. And not all the military hardware that the US has could defend itself, you know, against a handful of criminals. So um, the, the, the whole cybersecurity thing is so important. And this is not just about cyber attacks. It's about our dependence on these and how good are they, how effective and how can we protect them. Um, so that's uh, another uh, category. Something important to Scotland is the protection of our, our marine 
um, interests. And that isn't done effectively just now. I, I was very sad to hear of the death of Bill Austin, whom a number of you uh, will have known. And uh, I hadn't known until a few days ago that uh, Bill had died very sadly. And he did one of the papers in this series on borders. And he was he was our go-to person, you know, for expert advice on these areas. Um, so it, it is very, very sad that, that he's gone. Um, but of course, one of the points he made that the UK is so bad in terms of actual border defence And uh, this is recognised in the UK's own security review, in which they estimate that uh, we lose annually about £37 billion because of smuggling and all kinds of other activities, because there isn't effective border defence. Now, this is much more important in Scotland because of our geography than it is... um, even for the rest of the UK, uh, we need to be able to protect as best as we can our major energy, um, uh, marine-based installations, and of course, uh, as oil uh, decreases, uh, our renewable energy, marine renewable energy is becoming more and more important. So both that and for all the, the criminal activities, this is uh, a very important area for Scotland's security that needs to be. It's one area that does need to be increased. So we, we have that. We have, of course, pandemics. And this is something that was interestingly in the top five lists of the UK <laughs> The the 2015 list of major potential threats to security. It's just that nobody, it's not true to say they didn't do anything about it. They did have an exercise, major exercise on it. But I have to say that neither the UK government nor the Scottish government did anything to prepare uh, or to, to follow through the lessons from the exercise because everyone was so complacent. This is something that happens in Africa, something that happens in Asia. It's not something that happens here. So uh, the, the protection and the preparation for pandemics is another uh, major source of concern. Uh, terrorist attacks, we have actually been in some ways fortunate in Scotland in having had very few and uh, and of course the terrorist attacks we've had in the UK have been very much related to our uh, appalling interventions in in Middle Eastern wars um, and increasingly in some of the far right uh, developments but I think one has to say, I actually thought, and many of us of our generation, I think, would have been aware of this too, that when the troubles broke out so seriously in Northern Ireland, knowing the situation, the demographic situation in Scotland, um, I think we expected we might get a bigger spillover here. And we didn't. And I think it was partly because many people here kind of looked and said, let's step back a bit. Uh, 
but I think it was also the very time uh, when you had an increasing interest in Scottish nationalism, you know, the Hamilton by-election and then the big successes in uh, the early 70s and 74 and so on and throughout the 70s. And I think in many ways it shifted a lot of the interest away from the old sectarianism in Scottish politics. But uh, that's uh, another issue. We have to be prepared for terrorist attacks, uh, but we have been fortunate and it hasn't been a major uh, threat so far uh, in Scotland. Organised crime, yes, uh, this again is something um, we see the, the the terrible extent of scamming, uh, the growth of that. Um, it, it it impacts on us in the illegal drug trade and and so on. So yes, uh, that is a, a, a security issue. Territorial attack is something we are fortunate in our geopolitical position in Scotland because we we have very clearly defined historical boundaries. So we don't, despite Michael Gove's effort and George Galloway's effort and so on, we don't actually have significant boundary disputes. Um, uh, So we have these well-established historical boundaries. We are surrounded by... Uh, basically fairly comparatively stable democratic states and there is no real reason uh, why uh, we should see territorial attack as an issue except for one that I will of course come on to (laughs) the fact that we're a massive military base Um, so uh, you know, in, in that sense, I don't think territorial attack, but as I say, even the UK doesn't see that as such a major issue. Now, that, of course, takes us to the one of our biggest existential threats, and that is the fact that we are a major nuclear base. Uh, and But just before I go on to that in more detail, um, I think it's worth... One of the things we were doing in these transition papers was to say, to analyse the issues, but to say, what should we do about them? Can we do anything now about them? And I've suggested in my paper, this is something the Holyrood Parliament could do now, that we establish a secure Scotland Commission and that um, this should be made up of uh, our government um, and uh, uh, military institutions, uh, our our parliamentarians and some local government representation too because they have responsibilities for public safety and uh, representatives from Civic Scotland. And that a, a secure Scotland commission should have to, every two years, produce an assessment of where they see risks, major security risks in Scotland, on that broad uh, range uh, of issues that I've outlined. Now, 
we could do this now very validly um, and I think we could set use this kind of thing as an example of how we can safely transition, how we could have the institutions in place. The other institution that I think we should could start on, because one of the things that is quite often said, I don't think this gets through much to the general public, but certainly in some of the uh, academic debates and the political debates, uh, oh, but how could we do without the, the UK's... Um, uh, access to the five eyes, you know, to to all the uh, the security information, and uh, we're so crucial uh, in this, so important to our security. Well, I would certainly dispute that it was important to our, our security, the UK security in many respects. But nevertheless, I think we have to say no we will be building our own, but we can make that start now um, because we can have our Scottish security and intelligence um, agency and we can model it on the Danish PET, which is a combination. They, they don't separate police, uh, civilian police and military intelligence. This is all one of the same agency. And we can do the same in Scotland for what would be our um, intelligence needs. And we can base this, the police Scotland already have their uh, intelligence uh, gathering agency at the the police campus, the prime campus. And uh, we could build on this, um, you know, expand it to be security and intelligence and make it clear that this would be strengthened uh, in the run-up to a referendum and afterwards so that that was, again, something else that was in place. Now, if I can come back to the nuclear issue, because this is, of course, one of uh, the big, big security threats that Scotland has. There is no doubt whatsoever that in any major military clash that uh, Faslin Coolport and a number of our other sites, Faslin Coolport would be up there as a top target and the whole of central Scotland would be away. And it's not just the threat of uh, this in terms of actual warfare, but there is also the risk of accidental, uh, uh, not so much explosion, but certainly as radiation leak. And it's not just that we have these bases, but that and that we store. Um, uh, what uh, was supposed to be 180 maximum nuclear warheads at, at Coopport, but of course the latest review has said they're putting it up to 280 nuclear warheads. I mean, I think this is in breach of the Non-Proliferation Treaty and we're discussing as to whether we can take uh, any legal challenge, any judicial review on this. Um, But uh, 
but these are all transported up and down because it's Burfield, Aldermaston in the south of England, uh, where the warheads are made, where they go back to be serviced. And the convoys which come up uh, from uh, Burfield to Faslane uh, come right through. They, they come through, there's a couple of main routes they take. They come through towns, villages and cities. They come round Edinburgh, they come through Paisley and so on. Uh, um, and uh, this is something we would like to see the Scottish government taking a stronger line on in relation, because they don't have powers in relation to the base. That's crown property. But they do have powers in relation to, you know, the rest uh, of, of the, the country. And it has always seemed to me New Quatch, which follows these, and where incidentally, these have increased in the last two years, which makes us think that the increase in the number of warheads, that this has been planned, that these convoys have been increasing. Uh, now, the tracking of these is done by volunteers in England all the way through. And for many years now, Newquatch has, you know, has followed these, but has been very careful in that it hasn't, it, it has tried not to announce in advance in any public way that it's happening so that it couldn't be accused of, uh, uh, you know, encouraging terrorism or anything of this kind. But uh, if, if a crowd of amateurs like the New, New Watch volunteers can keep their eyes on these very visible convoys, then, my goodness, any half-intelligent terrorist group would find no difference, difficulty in identifying when these are setting off either from the Faslane end or the, the Burfield end, and they're travelling during the day, during night. Um, they, their routes are entirely predictable. Uh, now, any accident happening there, then you have serious risk of release of radioactivity. And uh, are they, you know, we've asked local authorities, are they prepared? <laughs> do they know what to do? And the answer is basically no. Um, there are, of course, the risks in our power stations, and, and we've got, I mean, they are in the process of closing down. Uh, Hunterston, uh, you know, because of the cracks, they're closing down. Uh, Torness uh, recently had to have a, a shorter close down again because of identification of cracks. But the the, the, the process of decommissioning these, uh, as we've seen in, in Caithness, the process of decommissioning is very long indeed. Uh, and um, again, without this, and we've got in Resythe all these old uh, hunks of nuclear-powered submarines. So this is a big uh, risk. Now, uh, about the the armed force, perhaps I'd like to say something else just first, and that is the SNP as a whole has has often been very happy to say, oh, look at the example of Norway, 
you know, that's something we could follow in terms of defence security policy, etc. I wish they would start saying much more often, look at the example of Ireland, because Ireland has been very internationally successful. And to the best of my ability, even the UK state in um, the past uh, uh, many, many decades hasn't tried to (laughs) invade it. Um, And uh, Ireland has contributed uh, for many, many years and is very highly respected for doing so, contributions to UN uh, peace forces. It was elected from, what is it, 190-odd states just recently to be one of the members of the UN Security Council. There are, there's a group that, that are elected and change every, I think it's every two or three years. Ireland was elected, so it's on the UN Security Council. It has a respected place in the EU. It played a very important role in getting the cluster bomb treaty through when it was about to be abandoned it, together with Norway, got that back on tracks. And it has been one of the states pushing the and one of the enthusiastic signatories. I don't think there was any any opposition at all in Ireland to it being one of the signatories and ratifying the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Ireland spends nothing, 0.3% of its GDP on defence. And how effective it has been with soft power. So we should be looking at that example much more than some people like to. Now, Come on to armies, navies and air forces. You know, I put some in my paper, some references into some work, but Crawford and Marsh uh, recently did a study in which they suggested, and, and you know, and they come from the more conventional um, uh, military and military academic background, that um, they thought their previous estimates of what an independent Scotland needed to spend on defence could actually be significantly lower now. And they estimated that between 1.1 and 1.3 billion would be sufficient for Scotland's needs. Now, in the GERS figures, what is allocated to Scotland for defence purposes is 3.4 billion. So already you could say that's a 2 billion saving. And their suggestion, and it's similar to one or two others, that we we could have our combined forces of about 11,000 personnel, 70% of them regulars. Um, And there's a whole range of um, issues there that I'm happy to take questions on, but a bit too detailed. The one thing which I think is very important for us to say is that anyone who identifies as being Scottish resident or wishes to be or whatever, who is in the UK Armed Forces, who wishes to join the Scottish Defence Forces, will be entitled to be employed in the Scottish Defence Forces. And although that might initially mean you have some uh, overmanning in some things and less in others, 
there's such a high turnover in in armed services that this soon can come into balance. But I think we should be able to give that assurance to people. Now, uh, I, I want to come back just finally to dealing with the nuclear issue. And we are greatly helped now because of this uh, treaty which just came into force in January at this year, United Nations Treaty, and which the first meeting will be next January of the state parties who have ratified it. There are many more who have supported it, but the countries where it's been formally ratified through their constitutional processes, I, I think it's about 52. And they include some you know, big countries like South Africa, like Mexico, actually, like many of the South Americans, uh, some major Asian ones, obviously countries like New Zealand. In, in Europe, it's Austria, it's Ireland and, and so on. So the, the importance of this is that that treaty has one, it is a United Nations treaty. It has within it a whole set of procedures for getting rid of nuclear weapons if you've got them. And the state parties will, will set an, a, a timescale and, and so on. And the, it's SNP policy, it's Green policy, it's ALBA policy to ratify that treaty. Now, that treaty has provisions, specific provisions for countries that have the nuclear weapons of another state on their territory. And there will be processes for those removals. So when we insist that these weapons are removed, uh, well, we will be doing so if that treaty is ratified within the context of United Nations support uh, and a whole set of procedures. Now, th this is going to be a huge, huge battle. I mean, we know this because having nuclear weapons is of no defensive use. And a lot of the, the top defence people in the UK know this. It is of huge political use. It's the same reason as these aircraft carriers, uh, white elephants uh, swimming, swimming off in the sea. Uh, and it is for international prestige. It's to remain in the one of the permanent security council members. It's to be big players. And we know that's what it's about. And they have nowhere else to put their nuclear weapons. There are one or two possible sites in, uh, in the rest of the UK, but they, uh, they would require, you know, it took, I think, 14 years to convert the, the Faslane Coolport site from the old having the previous Polaris weapons uh, to having Trident, because Trident's very big. It needs much bigger, massive areas of concrete because there's greater sensitivity when you're changing over warheads, all kinds of technical things like that. And there are very few places, even potentially, where that could be built, and it takes a long time. Having said that, one thing that we can demand and which needn't take a long time, uh, two to three years, 
is that all nuclear warheads are removed from Scotland and that all the UK has to do is to create its nuclear warhead store, which, you know, there are one or two possible sites in, um, in existing bases where have been used for that before. And they have no excuse for not proceeding to do that. Now, I would hope there would be a huge campaign in England to say, no, we don't want them anyway. <laughs> but we can logistically say this is practical. There's no reason at all why that cannot be done and why we don't demand it. Now, my personal view, but I have suggested it in the paper, is that um, the the issue of NATO, now I don't agree with NATO membership, but it is the SNP's policy uh, and there are divided opinions on it. But what I would say is I think it is essential that it is the policy policy, the SNP or whoever is taking us to independence, it is essential that we get the nuclear issue sorted out before we apply for NATO membership. Because immediately there will be huge pressure come on from NATO to say, oh no, you're not joining if you're going to force UK's nuclear capacity out of Scotland, which means it won't have that nuclear capacity. Uh, So you're not joining. There'll be massive pressures put on, which is why I think we should say that has to be settled first. We will ratify the treaty immediately. Uh, we, We will have in our constitution, I mean, I think this has been widely accepted, the same kind of wording that Austria has, that New Zealand in effect has in its legal system, prohibiting within its its own constitution, weapons of mass destruction, as with chemical and biological weapons. Um, so if we, if we say that has to be done, the timetable has to be agreed, and then we can make the decision about applying. I think that is an important development in policy. Now, I'm sorry I've spoke for an awful long time. It's such a big issue, <laughs> but happy to deal with questions. Thank you very much, and please don't apologise. We could listen to you for even longer as well. Very um, enlightening. Um, I've got a quick. My first question here is from Marlene Halliday. She she had previously had put a question in the chat, but you've already answered it. You subsequently went on. She was asking about the level of conventional armed forces that you thought Scotland would need. Um, and how would that cost compare? And you've already covered that in mm. your talk. So, Marlene, Marlene, do you want to come? I'll just come to you and you can ask your own question rather than me reading it out. Yeah, OK. Um, yeah, thanks for that very fulsome uh, answer to my question before I'd even asked it, actually, Isabel. Thank you. Just another one. I'm just wondering about, so prior to independence... Um, to what extent can the UN Prohibition Treaty exert pressure on the UK, which, after all, the UK hasn't signed it? You know, So mm-hmm. is there any pressure it can put on Westminster on, say, the increase in nuclear warheads? Uh, I think the answer to that one is no. I think the increase, the nuclear warhead increase, this is what the UK is a signatory to the uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty. And even the fact that it says that, you know, it hasn't said we will have 280 
nuclear war, you know, will increase. It says we will increase something up to 280. Now, you can't have a system of supposed inspection. You know, non-proliferation treaty which is supposed to be able to inspect people's nuclear capacities. Now, if you're not even going to say how many warheads you've got, you say, well, it might be 180, might be 280. How can this be judged? Would we accept that with any other country with a, a through an inspection system? So I think that is something that that uh, through the non-proliferation treaty, uh, there, there could be an attempt to challenge. Okay. Thanks very much, Isabel, for that answer. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, does anybody else have any other questions? I don't see MD in the chat. I have a question for you as well, <coughs> if nobody else has got one. While they're maybe thinking up a question, um, you mentioned in your talk about ScotGov, the Scottish Government not having any jurisdiction over the bases in Faslane and Coolport because they're Crown Territory, but you said that there might be scope for them to take action about the convoys. Could you maybe go into a little bit more detail about what type of action you would envisage that might have an impact on the safety factors there? Yeah, uh, I mean uh, if they tried to do it, there would be a big (laughs) stooshy obviously but that's the point, we want a big stooshy because what they could say, quite rightly um, is that there are not the preparations in place, these are going through, built up Nuclear weapons are going through uh, built-up areas and they could be open. You know, the one thing that the UK government always wants to talk up is terrorism in any context except nuclear bases or nuclear convoys or anything of this kind. Just never wants to mention those. And yet... They're coming right through during the night too. I mean, quite honestly, if I I was wanting to to make the headlines and I was a a terrorist, I I would be planting something in a road. You know, if you you know these convoys are coming, uh, we know exactly what they look like. I would be wanting to plant something on the road, uh, even if it just involved uh, an explosion of some kind that highlighted what they were. Um, Now, to say this is not a risk is nonsense. And yet it is coming through our towns and cities um, several times a year. And those numbers, those times have been increasing recently. Now, the Scottish government could be saying we regard this as a risk. And for years ago, this was queried. Uh, why are you not transporting these by sea? Not, I mean, they wouldn't dare transport them by air <laughs> because just think of a crash. And why aren't you transporting them by sea, I think it's because they think they're more vulnerable by sea. But <laughs> you know, um, but it's never debated. It's not discussed. It's one of these. Oh, you're you're undermining security by asking these questions. 
But the Scottish Government is responsible for community safety and together with local authorities. And it could be challenging. It could be saying we do not regard these as safe. And we are alarmed that these convoys are increasing and that we think there are all these risks. But uh, let's put a bit of pressure on them to do so. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that answer. Um, Marlene, I think you had a question about the paper that um, Uh, that Isabel mentioned. Yes, yes. Sorry, I I was just... um, I'd gone off into a little daydream there about being involved in civil disobedience that was going to create a great stushy um, around the next <laughs> one of these one of these transports. Actually, I, I got involved with, well, happened to be driving past one on the M6 a um, couple of years back, and I was halfway past the convoy before I really realised what it was. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't just like one or two vehicles. It was There was a lot there, obviously a lot of jeeps and things kind of presumably guarding it but um it puts a shiver down your back when you see actually see something like that mm-hmm. yeah um I, I was just going to go back to the paper that you mentioned um this series of transition papers from scottish independence um convention um isabel how how would we get hold of that paper well as far as i know they're on the the sick website so that if you go on to that then you should be able to access those. If there's, if you have any difficulty at all, if you just get on to the administrator uh, who deals with putting the stuff on the website, who is Shona McAlpine, who is my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, and and so if you email any any difficulties you might have, but they're on. There are more to come, but the ones that have been published so far, uh, we have, as I said earlier, we had uh, uh, Bill's uh, paper on borders. We have just, I think we've had the banking paper or currency paper. I think that was Peter Ryan who did uh, that one who was involved, uh, I'm trying to remember, yes, that is Peter Ryan. Peter Ryan was involved in the establishment of the euro. (laughs) This is the thing that's so annoying. We've got so many people in Scotland who are supportive, who've got expertise in all kinds of areas. Uh, Richard Murphy has just uh, done one on taxation and so on. so that the, there's a there's there's a whole uh, range of them uh, to come, and then they'll all be put together. Um, the, the, the there was the how to start a new country Commonweal book just a few years ago, um, going over some of the of the ground, but these hopefully update it, um, you know, to get another another audience, because there are things that we really seriously need to, I mean, things that I haven't kind of thought my way through, like we need really good, our own really good IT systems to be up and running and ready to go. Uh, So much um, there, but we've got people who know how to go about doing this and planning for it, and, and I feel that um, 
elements in the movement are doing it. Um, I just wish the parties were doing it as well. <laughs> and as I say, there are initiatives we can take and say, this is the starting point for, as with social security, you know, because we that parts of that were devolved, um, you know, this is the, 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 the starting point for us building and we're going to have all kinds of things that are just about ready uh, for the point at which we get a, a yes vote. Thanks, Isabel. We have two questions for you now from Sheena Stephen and from Jim Stamper. So we'll come to yourself first, Sheena, if you'd like to unmute yourself and ask your question. Hi, Isabel. Really enjoyed your talk. I've only ever been to one a protest up at Fast Lane and I was absolutely aghast. It's just such a a horrible, deathly sight in such an absolutely gorgeous area. And uh, that really just struck me as just two opposites colliding. It's, it's horrible. Um, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about um, on independence that... There seems to be uh, uh, some talk about the, the Scottish government maybe saying, oh, well, we'll keep the nuclear weapons if you pay us a rent for them and all that. I find I get really, really upset when I hear things like that being discussed. But my, my question really was, um, I mean, the nuclear weapons, as I understand it, are really owned by America. We don't actually own them. I think I'm right in that, but you can, you can correct me. Yeah. And uh, the decisions is... I find this unbelievable that this decision by the UK to increase the weapons, it's not as if we're facing some um, terrible threat um, at the moment. So I, I just can't understand why they're increasing the amount. Is this pressure from America to increase them? Maybe that they don't have as many warheads in some place else and they're decreasing them there and they want to increase them here instead. And... Uh, I mean, do we get any benefits um, at all from actually having the warheads here at Fastlane? No, I mean, I think there are various strands in the points you made. First of all, uh, the, 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 the crucial bit, because there's no point in having warheads unless you've got delivery systems, and the crucial, crucial bit, the Trident missile, we rent from the US. And we build the submarines. Um, one of the reasons, of course, there's such a, a long delay in the the next generation, which uh, you know, submarine work has, has started, is because it's the Americans who decide the design and they keep making changes. And therefore, the submarine designs here have got to keep on changing. Um, now, the warheads are... Uh, made, uh, they are UK uh, down in Burfield, but the, 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 I mean, lots of people who are expert in, in this do think that the, the American, but by the way, what happens is that the actual uh, Trident delivery system goes back to the United States for servicing. So there are many people who think the idea that the US would allow anyone else to do the targeting 
So they control the software, you know, they go back for servicing. When they're delivered or they go back for servicing, uh, the idea that they will not uh, keep some control over the targeting, irrespective of what the, the, the UK says. Now, the question of, is there any benefit? I, I mean, on the economic ground, it's one of these uh, interesting things that Scotland actually gets very, very little by way of employment from the nuclear weapons here because the uh, the submarine, the building of the submarines, that's barrel is the submarine building yard. And incidentally, you couldn't put a basic barrel because it's tidal. And for submarines, you know, that doesn't work. It's down in Burfield that uh, they may, and the atomic weapons establishment that they do the warheads. America builds the missiles and we have to pay them for them. And the, 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 the Fasling Coolport base, uh, now, yes, the, there's only about, and these are Ministry of Defence's own figures from just a few years ago, that there were just about 540 jobs that were dedicated Trident-related jobs. And those, the specialist jobs, looking after the warhead store, loading and unloading, doing changeovers to the missiles, that kind of thing. Uh, now, other jobs service the other submarines. Now, we really wouldn't want the the other uh, astute-class submarines and others that are, are coming. We wouldn't want these either. There isn't quite the same timescale urgency because of dealing with those. There must be a timescale and dealing with them, and they are risk, they are nuclear-powered, um, but there's not quite the same urgency. One of the reasons why it's essential that the nuclear weapons are dealt with immediately is, of course, the tactics of the UK government aren't to say we will never remove these. It is to say, well, it's going to be so difficult. You've got to be reasonable. It's so difficult for us to find somewhere else to put them that um, let's negotiate a 10-year lease. Uh, they'll even take a five-year lease because the assumption will be well, once we've got over the point of independence and, and we've had them still there for five years, 10 years, we'll just negotiate and negotiate. And, lease. and that will be their tactic. And they will bung us money uh, to keep it going, to keep the Guantanamo and the Clyde <laughs> type of thing going. But it is absolutely essential that there is no give. Because as soon as you show a wee bit of weakness, a wee bit of, oh, well, we'll be reasonable, uh, you've had it. You know, I feel it is after that. Forget it. Because they will use every kind of blackmail to keep their virility symbols. And uh, as I quoted before, Ernest Bevan in 1946, when the decision had to be made secretly, the rest of the cabinet, the Labour cabinet was not informed, but a subcommittee made the decision to go ahead with British nuclear bomb. And Bevan said, we've got to have a bomb with a bloody big Union Jack on it. And I think that tells us, even at that period, uh, what it was about in so many ways. So 
Uh, we've got to be clear on that. We can be a, a bit more flexible in time scale in terms of the other submarines. And of course, that's where quite a bit of the work. But also the, the, the Scottish government has said that it will be using, I mean, there's a wide, the money that has gone into Vaseline Cooper is enormous. And there are a wide range of facilities there and accommodation there and so on. And they have said that that will be the principal base for uh, uh, Scottish defence forces. Uh, so you, you, if you're going to make that your principal base, you know you have to have a timetable for move moving <laughs> the the rest out. Um, but th- there's. Um, in terms of jobs and so on, I don't think there's any doubt that the jobs can be created, the transition, and in particular, we, uh, I mean, this is something we've got to get a grip on and Scottish Government has failed to get a grip on and everyone knows it, and that is control, uh, effective control over renewable energy um, Thanks very much, Isabel. Just the other thing was, I'm kind of intrigued and in, in, in about why they're increasing the amount of warheads. Are. Yes. Look, you're not alone because when that was announced, there were a lot of experts in the field, including retired military people, the Rusi, the Royal United Services Institute, which you know is a, a research uh, organisation, who were scratching their heads and yeah. saying, yeah. "Why is this happening? What, yeah. What's been done?" Now, um, whether I, I mean, I, I don't know whether there's well, any US yeah. pressure on this, but I don't see why it should be needed because honestly, they've got far, far more nuclear warheads than could ever conceivably be needed. I mean, we can blow up the world several times as yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very difficult to know what the reason is, and they haven't given a reason yet. And two is, and Labour's utter shame, yes. the response of Starmer and of their defence spokesperson, even when he, I thought, well, this is an open goal for them. They're, they're committed to keeping nuclear weapons, but... They can at least say, but it's disgraceful, you're going to increase them rather than decreasing them. No. It's, well, uh, we, we won't pronounce on that until we get an explanation of whether it's needed. <clears throat> you know, that... <laughs> yeah. So, that you're, yeah. so you're just in the same position as me then. We just don't know why. Yeah, no. and some very, very high-level people yes. are in the same position as we are. Thank you so much. That was a actually given a reason. Yeah, thank you. Move on to Jim. Jim, you've got. I also got a question for Isabel. Hi, Isabel. Um, Just from the financial aspect, particularly the conventional forces, I mean, a huge proportion of them are based in England. Mm -hmm. So presumably, has the fact of the change of income tax uh, moving to Scotland been Mm -hmm. taken into account? And also the sort of multiplier effect of all these people having money to spend up here mm-hmm. instead of spending it in England. And also the downline jobs that will be created um, to supply and 
has all that been taken into account when you've been looking at the financial side? Well, I I haven't. I mean, I think that is, and by and large, the the people with a specialist knowledge and interest, or you know, on the uh, the the. Detail, personnel details and so on, they've been looking primarily just at the costs of financing the service rather than the, the multiplier costs, you know, of the changes. It's people who've been doing work on public expenditure, you know, the wider public expenditure issues, I think, can take that on board. But one point that is, I think, valuable in giving a reassurance to people who are in the armed forces or relatives in the armed forces, um, but also from a financial point of view, is that uh, it, it will. we won't really need in Scotland the kind of barracks, army accommodation that we have now to anything like... Uh, extent because we're not really planning Scottish forces engaged in expeditionary warfare. They're they're going to be operating in and around Scotland. Some may do uh, uh, periods of UN peacekeeping, and you know I would hope. Um, But in Ireland, those engaged in UN peacekeeping you know, they'll maybe do their six months, um, uh, but then it's another lot who do it next time round. You know, and this means that most people in the armed forces will be able to live at home and have normal home lives, which has been one of the very unfortunate things, I think, and one reason why many uh, only do a short spell, only do their seven years or whatever, Um because their families have to live in military accommodation and move around and, they, you know, they don't have a stability. Um, we, I think, can offer our armed forces uh, much more stability and normality than they will have in the British Army. Thank you very much. Well, we've really enjoyed your talk today, Isabel, and the unless anyone else has got a question I think we would be maybe looking to round off there but I'll just offer you know open up the floor in case anyone has got something they'd like to ask before we stop otherwise um it would just be up to me to thank you very very much indeed for coming along and sharing your wide knowledge of this subject with us we really appreciate it uh, and I'd also like to thank, in their absence, Mary and Alan for organising it. Did you have something else? I have a question. <laughs> it's not to do with security. Uh, it might be interesting if you haven't done it for pensioners for India. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about this is the most diverse parliament there has been. And that may be so in some respects, although I look back to 2003, it's the advantage of being older, we can... <laughs> um, and I wonder, uh, what's the... I don't know the answer, but what is the age representation pattern? How representative is that of Scotland as a whole? <laughs> because um, I, I'm just thinking of... It's what made me think about it, 2003, when there was the pensioners' party. Remember, <laughs> and he got elected uh, on the list, and um, 
as did several other independents. Uh, and for people who forget, nobody, these journalists don't have any memory or they're too young. 2003, the Greens got 7% of the vote and seven MSPs. Today, they got 8% of the vote and eight MSPs. <laughs> and it suggested that there is change. Um, <laughs> but uh, it would be interesting to look at the age range. Uh, that may be an interesting topic for a future meeting, mm-hmm. looking at you know how older people, uh, the golden generation, as it were, are represented. Yeah. Uh, sometime, I mean, I know um, there's somebody here that, brought this up to me but she can't she doesn't she's not able to speak but Jeannie Campbell's here and I remember Jeannie saying to me that when you go to hustings you know there's lots of questions about representation of being people or young people or disabled but um, older people are very seldom and pensioners issues for pensioners are very seldom mentioned you know um so that's that's certainly I don't know if that's something that maybe the committee would want to discuss at a, at a future meeting. Mm-hmm. I'll just add in. I was at um it was a local meeting during the election campaign, and where I live, it's Bill Kidd, who's the uh, constituency MSB, and um, and I'd been asking some questions about pensions, and it kind of went on to uh, t- talk a bit about that, but then Bill actually came in and said. Now I think about it, we've got all these special interest groups of people who've got an avenue into decision-making. This is talking about the SNP, not, not Parliament as a whole. And, and, and actually, we, we, really should have, um, we really should have older people. We should have pensioners there, or at least older people there as well. So maybe it is something to think about. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's a, no, that's a really interesting uh, avenue to explore so thank you very much indeed i would declare the meeting closed thank you to everyone who attended but just to to thank everyone for coming along and but in particular obviously to isabel you've been listening to a pensioners for independence podcast this one was brought to you by greater glasgow pensioners for independence group and featured the speaker Isabel Lindsay talking about defence and security in an independent Scotland. Isabel mentioned that she's written a paper on this topic for the Scottish Independence Convention, part of their transition paper series. You can find that by going to their website at independenceconvention.scot that's independenceconvention.scot And if you click on the transition papers option from the top menu, you'll find the seven transition papers that so far have been published. Um, Just to whet your appetite a bit, they are on Scotland's smart borders, Scotland's security, that's the one that we've been hearing about today from Isabel, debts and assets, that's by Dr Craig DL, banking, That's by Peter Ryan. Uh, The fifth one is on taxation and is authored by Richard Murphy. The sixth one isn't there yet, but coming soon on currency, again authored by Peter Ryan. And the seventh one planned in is about joining EFTA and the EU. There's a whole lot there to read about. You can also download the paper uh, onto your own computer and read it at leisure.